You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to ODI on a Monday morning. Eat more barak. Welcome to the meeting on uh, African industrialization and entrepreneurship um, that's jointly hosted by the OECD Development Center and the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change and the Overseas Development Institute, and in particular, the Supporting Economic Transformation Program at the ODI, which I'm directing here uh, at, um, uh, at ODI, and that's uh, funded by the Department for International uh, Development. Industrialization is a, a very interesting topic for us. Uh, we work a lot on this issue. We think it's really important in transforming African economies and in creating jobs. Um, and we do a range of work. Uh, we, um, we were two weeks ago in Addis Ababa. We had a sort of a pan-African meeting on industrialization. Uh, and um, we were uh, hearing how Ethiopia is doing extremely well, where industrialization is uh, is uh, is growing at a fast pace, it's growing 25% a year in the manufacturing sector. We're very pleased that the ambassador from Ethiopia is here as well. Um, and uh, we do a range of other work. Uh, just a week ago, we were launching um, a, a, a booklet on 10 policy priorities to um, tra transform industry and create jobs in Kenya, which with the uh, Kenyan Association of Manufacturers which um, they are using at the moment in the, in the debates leading up to the, uh, the presidential elections. Um, and we do some other work as well. But uh, here today we are um, looking at a, a range of other uh, work that has been done. And we're very pleased that we are hosting the UK uh, launch of the African Economic Outlook, which is uh, this book. And I'm sure you can pick up a copy either outside or later on um, uh, on your chair. Um, it's uh, jointly, it's a UNDP, OECD, um, and uh, African Development Bank publication. I'm sure Federica will, will, will discuss that, um, that in a minute. Um, there will also be a discussion uh, on a range of other work. But let me first sort of introduce the, the stellar panel that we've got here today. So on my right, we've got Federico Bonaglia. He is the deputy director uh, at the, uh, the, the OECD Development Center. Uh, welcome. And um, he'll be uh, presenting uh, on the report. We'll then hear from Johnson, Jonathan uh, Said, who's there on the left. He uh, heads up the private sector development work at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change um, and uh, will also um, um, discuss a paper that he's been working on uh, discussing about the how-to uh, of, of, of industrialization. And then we've got some very interesting uh, discussions, um, one from uh, the public sector from, from a donor. So we've got on my left here Rachel Turner, who is the uh, Director General for Economic Development at the Department for International Development. And I must say that all the interesting and important work at DFID um, sits within, within uh, uh, Rachel's uh, team, uh, whether it is about uh, the CDC recapitalization and strategy, whether it is about uh, training relationships, and we, uh, you might say a bit more on the announcement that has been made uh, yesterday, but also some very exciting work around um, 
uh, attracting investment in, in African countries, including in the manufacturing sector. And then we uh, will hear from uh, from Desde uh, Mazi, who is uh, at, at WITS, uh, but also um, at the Investec uh, Institute. And uh, I think you've just come in from Basel, talking to the, governor, the African governors about automation and, and industrialization. So we'd like to hear from you as well. Um, this meeting is uh, it's online, it's streamed online. Um, so if there are questions, um, you can send them through the iPad, and I will um, uh, uh, refer them to the panel. Um, the meeting is recorded, um, so um, in 24 hours or so, there will be a recording online, um, and you can then um, look at it um, again. So uh, with that uh, introduction, I'd like to go first to um, Federico for uh, your introductory presentation. I'll, I'll invite them to talk about 10 minutes uh, each and then discuss for about five to 10 minutes. So we have about 40 minutes and then around 45 minutes for, uh, for questions and answer with, uh, with the audience. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Dirk. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's a great honor to be here again and I would like to thank ODI for the kind uh, hospitality. And uh, it's really an honor and a pleasure to be with such good uh, panel members uh, with us today. Uh, I will walk you through uh, the latest African economic outlook, and I plan to do it um, in two moments. Uh, I will first give you very quickly a kind of general overview of how we see uh, African grow prospects over the next couple of years um, and put them in a bit longer-term perspective as a kind of appetizer. And then I will go more um, in-depth around the theme of industrialization and entrepreneurship. But before I start, let me say just a few words of uh, where we come from and why this report. Um, as Dirk say, I'm, said, I'm the Deputy Director of the OECD Development Center. There is a special organization within the OECD that you may be familiar with, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. We're based in Paris. The OECD brings together 35, let's say, economically advanced uh, democracies. Uh, the Development Center has a slightly different membership because we are f open to uh, non-OECD member countries. And so today we have 25 uh, countries that are from outside the OECD, uh, of which nine are located in Africa. And then we have 11 in Latin America and the rest in Asia. We have big countries with us. We have South Africa, we have China, we have India, we have Brazil, but we also have smaller countries. We have Cabo Verde, we have uh, Mauritius, we have Vietnam, Thailand, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic. So quite a diverse set of countries. Every year we produce jointly with the African Development Bank and UNDP the African Economic Outlook. And this is, I think, the 16th edition of the report is a unique report that uh, covers the entire entirety of the continent. So we have uh, 54 in-depth country notes that are available online for free download. We have a chapter that monitors the macroeconomic developments of the continent every year, and then every year we choose a specific theme. And the theme is chosen so as to be useful for the discussion that is taking place among African policymakers, but also between African policymakers and their partners, including donor agencies, financial institutions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we support, in particular, the priorities of the African Union 2063 agenda. Uh, that is an agenda for transformation of Africa. And uh, I like very much uh, the um, uh, support and economic transformation approach because I think this is the key. And you will see in our presentation why um, transformation remains a major challenge for Africa. So let me go now straight into my presentation. I don't know whether it can be uh, shown on the slide. Here it is. 
So I will, as I said, go through two moments in the presentation. First one, um, the macroeconomic outlook, and then industrialization and entrepreneurship. What is the storyline here? What are the key messages? Well, uh, the first headline is that we see Africa um, growing again. Uh, the situation now is better than last year. Uh, we project to have growth at around 3.4% in 2017 and 4.3% in 2018. This is better than the 2% that we had uh, in 2016, but still below what we used to observe in the early parts of the 90s, of the 2000s, sorry. So, situation improving, but not as good as before. What is interesting is that if you look at the regional distribution, East Africa is clearly leading the charge. Uh, we have growth that is around 6% for the region, while Southern Africa is unfortunately lagging behind. We are below 2%. West Africa used to be a good performer. Unfortunately, uh, Nigeria has been going through quite a difficult time. Uh, they were in recession, and because of the size of the economy, this has driven down the performance of the region. What is interesting to see is that the situation is changing in Africa. Um, we have often seen African performance driven by what's happening outside of Africa, namely commodity prices. They still play a very important role, but the situation is changing because we see domestic drivers of growth that are emerging. And in fact, this year, 60% of growth is driven by domestic factors, household consumption and government investment. Still, the external condition matters, and our forecast of next year reaching 4.3% hinges upon uh, oil prices regaining a bit of ground, and the latest figures are not so optimistic, but that's all. What remains as a major challenge uh, for African development is that growth has not been able to generate enough jobs. Uh, we know that every year there are 29 million uh, young people that enter the labor market, so jobs need to be created for these uh, 29 million people. And despite growth rates averaging more than 5% for over 10 years, job creation has been not satisfactory. There is clearly a demand for uh, more public policies that can help uh, supporting enterprise creation, employment creation. But for this to happen, there is a major financing challenge. And African uh, financing remains stable. So if you look at the external sources of financing, we see that aid is more or less stable, slightly declining, but still remaining there. Remittances are on the increase. They are the single most important source of external financing. FDI are recovering. Portfolio flows are going down. On the domestic side, which is the most important part, uh, because no government can develop within domestic resources without taxes, basically. On average, African tax to GDP ratio is about 16%. This is half what we observe in the OECD countries. While in Latin America, we are around 23. The OECD is 33, 34. Africa, 16. There is a huge variation across countries, of course, and you have countries that have made big progress. What is interesting is that um, these revenues have been decreasing slightly over the last two years because of the impact of lower commodity prices and so royalties, lower royalties. But the non-extractive part of these tax revenues has remained stable, which shows some, resist some resilience. So this is the first part of my presentation. I will go very quickly through the slides uh, because I want to focus on the second part, which is industrialization and entrepreneurship. Um, this is a major uh, question for addressing the job creation problem of Africa. Um, private sector development, enterprise development is the priority, and we will go through the different parts uh, in a second. 
So I show you the economic performance. We are, in, we are getting a bit out of the woods, but still not as good as before. Regionally, East Africa is doing better than the rest. Southern Africa is lagging behind. 60% of growth driven by domestic sources, which is good news. External sources of financing, you see the uh, orange part is the aid part. So you see that there's been a slight decline over the last few years, but we are still around the 50 billion uh, dollars per year. FDI, which is the red part, is on the increase. And what is interesting is that um, more than 40% of FDI projects, of new FDI projects, are going to sectors that are non-extractive. So outside of oil, gas, and mining, which uh, testimony a bit of diversification taking place in African economies. And as I said, <laughs> remittances remain the single largest source of external financing. If we look at portfolio flows, that is the green part, this has been uh, dramatically declining, although they remain relatively small in absolute terms. I also talked to you about domestic revenues, and you see that tax to GDP tax collection in Africa uh, has been a bit on the decline, but this has mostly been due to declining royalties because of the lower uh, commodity prices. So let's go now to the second part uh, of my presentation, um, industrialization and entrepreneurship. I have four uh, major messages to share with you here. The first one is that structural transformation remains a major challenge for Africa. What is structural transformation? Very simple, moving people and resources from low productivity sectors to higher productivity sectors and increasing the productivity within this sector. Now, if you look at this chart, it depicts to you on the horizontal axis the share of employment in the economy. So the green is agriculture and the bottom right, my bottom right, is mining. And on the vertical axis, you have the productivity of the sector as a share of the average productivity, labor productivity. We're not talking about total factor productivity, but the situation, I suppose, is not very different. So what you see here is that there are huge variation in levels of productivity across sectors. So mining is, or utilities are 10, 30, 20 times more productive than the average. Problem, they employ very small part of the population. If you look of where most of the population is employed, 60% is agriculture. And what the bad news about agriculture? Productivity is very low. So despite huge improvements over the last 10 years, this is the major challenge that Africa is facing. How to move resources from low productivity sectors to higher productivity sectors, and how to increase productivity within sectors, notably in agriculture. What is my second message? My second message is that um, we need to rethink industrialization uh, strategies. If you look at the share of manufacturing in African GDP, today we are below what it used to be in the 70s. So today manufacturing in GDP is around 11%. In the, in the early 70s it was around 17%. In Asia it has been the reverse. So manufacturing strategies of the past have not really worked very well, and we will probably discuss why in a second. But if we want today to focus on new strategies for industrialization manufacturing, we need to take into account that the situation has changed. And so you have an external context that is very different. We're talking about Industry 4.0. We're talking about automation, digitalization. And we are also talking about a global uh, environment in terms of trade and investment policies may be cha uh, changing. So um, industrialization strategies in Africa need to take into account both this technological change so what will be the impact of automation and technology and the policy change? What is going to, ch to change in terms of regional integration, trade liberalization, investment liberalization? Second, uh, third message is that um, 
the African strategies need to put a greater emphasis on entrepreneurs than what they've done in the past. Industrialization strategies in the past have largely focused on big, capital-intensive, state-owned enterprises that have delivered little. You've seen the manufacturing share of value-added that has not substantially increased. Very little attention has been paid to the role of micro, small, and medium enterprises. And if you look at some of the data, you realize that these enterprises have a very significant potential for job creation. This is an example. Uh, on the horizontal axis, we have the age of the firms, um, five years or younger. And if you look at the number of employees, this is the different colors. So the small firms, the ones that are young and small, less than 20 employees and very young, they account for the largest share of employment generation. So if employment is a, the priority, you cannot ignore what is going on with the small and medium enterprises. What is the problem with the entrepreneurship in Africa is that, unfortunately, uh, most of the entrepreneurs, I'm almost running out of my time, sorry. Uh, most of the entrepreneurs uh, are actually in low productivity sectors, in sectors where there are very little barrier to entry, like retail, trade, uh, hotels, and restaurants, but that also have very little potential for productivity growth, so very little potential for contributing to the structural transformation that I was mentioned before. While there are other sectors including in the services sector, including agriculture, that may have a huge potential for transformation. So public policies that are supporting entrepreneurs need to take into account this need of uh, facilitating a move towards other sectors. What is then uh, the final message that I have with you? Is that for you? So far, policies uh, to support entrepreneurs have been blind to the type of entrepreneurs that they were supporting. And if you look at the uh, characterization of entrepreneurs in Africa, you can distinguish between two broad groups, what we call necessity-driven entrepreneurs, basically people that declare themselves to be entrepreneurs because they didn't find a wage employment. So they try to, to, to become entrepreneurs because they didn't have any other opportunity. On the other hand, you have opportunity-driven entrepreneurs, people that have an idea, that have capacity, that have a drive, motivation, they want to be entrepreneurs. Now, most of policies and most of uh, support programs from uh, development partners have been blind to this reality and have uh, focused on supporting whatever type of entrepreneur also for poverty alleviation uh, reasons, which are very important and we should not deny them. But clearly, as uh, Tim Bergen used to say, uh, you need uh, the appropriate number of instruments for the goals that you have and you need to have, and you need to have the right instruments. So if you want to undertake poverty alleviation, there are other instruments. If you want to support enterprise creation, you probably need to use different type of instruments. And here, and it's going to be my last message, is that if you need to decide where you want to put your euro, your pound, your dollar, your extra dollar, or your yen, uh, or even better, your yuan, uh, skills uh, and infrastructures are the two areas where more needs to be done. And we know a lot about infrastructure, and I suppose that my colleagues here in the panel will probably say something about that. So let me focus on skills. Uh, unfortunately, managerial skills are a problem in Africa, not only in Africa, but in many countries. So managers of enterprises do not have the right type of skills to conduct their business. So very often they remain in the informal economy, and they're very, uh, they have very low rate of productivity. And the system for producing skills is also not working well enough. So this um, chart tells us an interesting story, that if you look at the share of students that are currently enrolled in technical education and vocational education and training, African countries overall 
they don't look that bad. There is about 11%, 10.5% of students that are enrolled in this type of education, more than Latin America, more than South Asia. There is, of course, a huge variation across countries. So Egypt is more than 20%, Ghana is less than 2%. But when you dig a bit deeper and you try to look at the type of skills that are acquired, they're not the ones that entrepreneurs are looking for. And second, when you look at the resources that government put into this sector, they're very small. If you look at the overall budget for the educational system, in Africa, the resources that are placed for the technical education are between 2% and 6% of educational budgets that by themselves are really quite small. So there is clear a huge um, reform agenda that together with, and maybe we can discuss this in the uh, question and answer because I run out of my time, but mm. together with more consolidated business development services and cluster can help African governments to address the entrepreneurship and job creation challenge. Federico, Sorry, thank you very much, it's been really good. Um, <laughs> just, just, just one question. Um, so you, you mentioned about targeting opportunity-driven entrepreneurs. I mean, first of all, I think this is something that is uh, sort of remarkable coming from an OECD, uh, which tends to be focused on investment frameworks, uh, in, uh, investment codes, multinational codes, and the like. So you're thinking about targeted, uh, targeting uh, particular entrepreneurs. But how do we know whether an entrepreneur is, is opportunity-driven? How, how can a, a donor or a public policymaker know that this is a particular opportunity-driven entrepreneur? Well, <clears throat> the data that we show... Uh, entrepreneurs self-declare themselves. Mm -hmm. So this is data that comes from the uh, global entrepreneurship monitoring exercise. And so they ask the question of how would you define, say, why, why did you choose to be an entrepreneur kind of thing? So there is information that you can use. But what we are suggesting here is not to target individual entrepreneurs, but to um, create um, conditions that can support to those entrepreneurs that are motivated and have the capacity to be entrepreneurs to uh, kind of fulfill their dream or realize their potential. So this has to do with the type of services and the type of programs that you put in place. And I think that um, the clustering approach mm -hmm. and the provision of business development services through incubators is a very interesting uh, mm -hmm. avenue to go. So today, uh, entrepreneurs are maybe given some kind of subsidies or access to facilitated loans, but they don't get access to the type of information, the type of services, the facilities that they need to build and develop their business. So we have experiences in OECD country. I'm Italian, as my accent shows. Um, in Italy, uh, we created, we, I mean, institutions, both public and private, established um, large institutions, sometimes uh, with 100 people working there, that are totally dedicated to provide services, business development services to enterprises. Mm -hmm. And these are run, funded, and managed by the private sector very often, or by public-private partnership. So this is where I say, bring the entrepreneurs on board, mm -hmm. listen to what they need, and give them the services that they need, rather than carpet, sorry. Yeah, okay, good. What I mean. So a lot of uh, discussion about what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, Let's focus on the how-to. Um, so Jonathan Said uh, is part of the Tony Blair Institute um, that ha have had uh, a range of uh, uh, advisors embedded in African governments to think uh, very much about the how-to of private sector development, inclusive growth. And um, you've just uh, written a paper um, uh, sort of aggregating the information of what you've learned. So we'd really like to hear from you. Over to you. Thank you very much, Dirk, and again, also from, uh, from our organization, thank you very much for this opportunity as well to present our, our paper today, which we are launching 
um, which we are launching just this morning, and the paper will be, is available um, on our website at the moment. Um, we, the paper is based on our own experiences working in, um, particularly in, work in a number of countries, in, uh, in particularly in Africa. Um, but we work particularly with, uh, as embedded advisors, um, on private sector development, specifically in four countries: Liberia, Sierra Leone on the west coast, on the west in West Africa, and um, Rwanda and Ethiopia in East Africa. Um, I just want to check the if the PowerPoint can come up. Just so that, yeah, there you go. That's it. Thank you. Um, so the paper, just going back, yeah, the paper is called The Jobs Gap, and it's about how to make inclusive growth uh, work in Africa, just uh, bringing forward our experiences and our own, uh, our own learning. And so what I want to do today is focus on three things. The first is to make a case why the current common approach to economic development in Africa um, is not delivering um, the structural transformation that um, Federico talked about. Um, argue why modern industrial policy is important, and we call this market-based sector development, and we explain what this is. And then the key part is suggest, okay, how can we actually go about it, as, um, as, as uh, Dirk mentioned. So, of course, the current enabling of environment approach is full of a lot of reasonable things, right? Promoting openness to trade, leveling the playing field for all businesses, generic investments in the infrastructure, the doing business reforms, etc. But... Um, I won't dwell on this slide. Um, as, as was mentioned, um, the structural change that we need for inclusive growth purposes in Africa hasn't been happening. Um, and this has serious implications, particularly on what we call the jobs gap, basically the, the difference between the number of people coming onto the market looking for economic opportunities, um, and then what the economic opportunities that the economy itself is able to provide. Um, and so we look at this metric here, which is just the difference between the labor force and total uh, employment opportunities, and this is increasing. And on current trends, unless we're able to buck this trend, we'll hit around 50 million. Um, and this has serious implications, implications for education, for healthcare, for food security, for, uh, for migration, um, and so it is uh, um, also for widening of the tax base as well. And so it is, it, this, this stuff matters and is important. So let's take a step back first and look at the problems with the enabling environment approach to economic development in, in Africa. So first, the first thing is it does tend to assume implicitly in practice that uh, all firms tend to face the same constraints. And so you tend to have policies that are standardized and that, uh, and, and, but in, them, in of themselves obviously end up having uh, different uh, implications on different businesses. It also tends to assume that uh, institutions themselves are, um, have the capacity to deliver those wide range of reforms we mentioned before, but in low-capacity governments, which is typically the case um, in many countries where we work, um, then this is not possible. And actually, more importantly, it makes another more subtle implicit implication, which is that you kind of first build government capacity, and then that gives you, and then you have the institutions to then deliver the enabling environment for the business, for businesses, and then businesses can come and create jobs. But it doesn't quite work like that. But you have to look at the things that are actually going to allow, give the political incentives in particular to the government to actually have to actually want to div to invest in the capacity that is necessary. And so once you go a step back, you've got the political economy, and then you have the underlying economic structure. And the problem that we tend to see in many countries is that the economic, current economic structure 
leads to cases where the people that have, the businesses that have political capital, that can then make, uh, then provide political capital to ministers, for example, uh, tend to come from sectors like mining or logging or typically the importation of various goods and services. And the things that they ask for in return for that political support are things which are not necessarily the things that we need for inclusive growth. Typically might be preferential licenses or tax rebates, for example. Um, and then the next big problem is that governments are doomed to choose anyway, right? You, you have a Ministry of Agriculture, you have a Ministry of Public Works, you have a Ministry of Youth and Sports, for example, of TVET, but how do you allocate, actually allocate resources to limited resources and in some countries sometimes almost non-existent uh, discretionary spend to those limited ministries? And those are going to have differential impacts on your businesses. And, but the most important thing is it doesn't provide any real basis for coordination and policy coherence for many governments in Africa. And this is from the private sector, from the entrepreneurs we're trying to support, probably the worst thing because you need to have, you need to know what the direction of travel is. You need to know where you're going to get your inputs, where you're going to be able to produce, what regulatory framework you have to be able to respect, where your markets are going to be for you to want to invest. Uh, and so the basis for coordination of disparate ministries and agencies across, which typically can be up to 15 or 20 that shape the enabling environment for a particular sector, is typically missing. So how do we get economic transformation? Um, what we need is politically smart, market-based sector development. The US, as uh, Federico is saying, focusing on specific sectors um, and identify sectors that can create jobs. Not just that can create jobs, but actually put you on a path to downstream value addition, considering the product space, for example. Um, and then focusing on fixing the binding constraints in those specific sectors. And accounting for the political, economic, the political economy realities that shape the decision makers, that affect decision makers, that need to put their career at stake to make those changes. So the problem is, is this hasn't really been applied well in Africa. It is difficult. It's very difficult to do, and that's important for us to recognize that. But there are some things that we can do to make our life uh, easier. First of all, a failure to uh, account for counter incentives. So an experience from Liberia where I've been working is an M4P project, a project to make markets work for the poor, which is trying to support the cocoa sector. Uh, then it's identified the regulatory framework as a barrier. But the focal person working in, in the Ministry of Agriculture uh, didn't ha quite have an incentive to put a regulatory framework in place because he was connected to the traders that stood to lose from that uh, regulatory framework. And so that binding constraint went unaddressed. Um, similarly, the key point is that many efforts to develop sectors in many countries are not championed typically by centers of government. I think Ethiopia is one of the few a handful of uh, exceptions there. Uh, there are a few others, Mauritius, Morocco, that are others. But the majority of countries, easily 40-odd countries in Africa, it's not championed by the centers of government. And so that means also that you have the right type, the support that's necessary for the center of government to take ownership is, is missing. Um, and that tends to lead to many disparate ministries and agencies, each setting their own policies on their own metrics without that communication between them. And sometimes inadvertently, some development partner projects do inadvertently tend to lead to uh, pull governments in different directions, which makes it more difficult for them, actually, given the limited capacity to set that enabling environment for those specific sectors that can create jobs. So we end up with a situation like this, for example, which is quite common from our own experience, and we've seen this from working on the ground, is that um, you might have your main in-country donors promoting you know, generic things, open trade, 
revenue mobilization, transparency, etc. Then you've got your biggest in-country lobbies who might be, you know, pushing for your mining preferential deals and your, you know, preferential and also tax rebates for your importers, where a lot of money is made uh, uh, by businesses on the ground. But then you still have, for example, your Rome-based agencies focused on food security. So they're making a case to the Ministry of Agriculture um, to focus on maize and rice, typically. Ministry of Trade might be working with the Geneva-based organizations, and they might have done a national export strategy, and they're focusing on textile, sugar, and tourism, as an example. And then IFC might have done its own analysis with the investment agency, and they're focused on other value chains. And then, of course, of course the Ministry of Finance, whose main constituent is IMF, typically, and they're focused on the traditional sector where the short-term revenues come from. Um, this doesn't work from a, from a, in a low-capacity low environment, and it doesn't work for private investment. So from our perspective, we've identified four key elements to get right. The politics and the economics simultaneously. So we need to understand the political dynamics, both in the short term and the long term. And economically, what's going to have the business case, what's going to get the return in the short term, but also what are the sectors that are going to shift that political economy to one that's aligned to the structural transformation that's needed. Diagnosis and strategic approach is crucial. So it's also, it's not just about doing a growth diagnostic for the whole country um, and then saying, oh, the binding constraint is energy and therefore until we fix energy, not much can happen. We need to also understand, do diagnosis at the sector level as well and identify the strategy and tactics that can work for the political realities of the decision makers in those specific sectors. And then, as referred to in, Af in the African Economic Outlook, um, the coordination mechanism and the enabling and the embedded delivery team are critical. You need a coordination mechanism first of all for governments because it's governments that have to lead, uh, that have to lead the way. It's their own country, it's their own vision, and that's what's really essential: is to help government come together and steer the ship in one direction. So you don't have situations where, for example, the Ministry of Trade is trying to promote small businesses in oil palm, for example, value addition. But the revenue authority then has no real clue about that because they're focused on short-term revenues. And so they're trying to tax as much as they can out of things like plastic importation, which is key for SMEs um, in that sector. Um, and we've seen many examples from our experience of cases where these things have worked well. So there are many positives out there for us to build on. In Rwanda, the strategic investment of CNH governments met both short-term needs. It gained political traction, so it helped the government gain... Uh, uh, politically, but also it was strategically important to help the country diversify away from these traditional uh, uh, sectors. Um, similarly in Ethiopia, even if we, when we're doing analysis, we've seen a case where it's not just about coming up with a list of 100 actions that are everything that's necessary to transform that sector, uh, but how do you translate that into something the politicians can actually run with? And there are a number of other examples um, talked about in the report. And this is my last slide. So if we speak, speak specifically about what can development partners do to help, we would say, like, help government, first of all, play its role in developing market systems. How do we do this? It's ultimately the government's own vision for how, not just the government, the political elite at large, we would say, how, what is the underlying vision that governments have to transform their own country? And let's help them, so let's support them to translate that into practice, let's enhance it, let's, give, let's challenge say, where the weaknesses are, and this sector might not actually lead to downstream value addition. These other sectors might. Let's invest in the right capacity, particularly, as mentioned in the, 
in the AEO as well, is focus on the right strategic capacity. How do you, and implementation capacity. How do you actually translate a vision and start to get real traction on the ground with the people on the ground? Um, and help local reformers to navigate politics. There are many, many uh, local reformers in, in government, in the private sector that really want to see, are passionate about their country and really want to see tangible change. Let's help them, give them the tools necessary for them to succeed. Um, and the final point is let's help governments themselves coordinate, take a strong lead, and around which different ministries can coalesce, like we've seen in Ethiopia. It took many years you know, to get there. Um, and around which development partners can then, uh, can then program as well as the private sector itself. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, My former boss used to uh, comment during these type of meetings, um, and he, he would say, what do you want to do on Monday morning? Uh, what are you going to do about this on Monday morning? Well, we, it's Monday morning, and we have the what, and we have got the how. Uh, to, uh, how to do it as well. So we've got the whole list, a specific list of things uh, that, that need to be done. So we're really spoiled. Um, Rachel, what do you do on a Monday morning? And <laughs> <laughs> are you convinced by the list? What can you let us know how you look at sort of the manufacturing sector, entrepreneurship from, from the Department for International Development's perspective? Sure. But let me start by saying it's a great report. I mean, I really think it is a very rich report. It's very mineable. And I think there's a lot of the what, but also a lot of the how. And I look forward to really getting into the how as well through the report that you've launched today. Um, I was thinking as you spoke um, whether what I'm going to say now would pass your test. So do hold me to account for that. I mean, I think a um, couple of things from the um, DFID point of view. I mean, we launched a new economic development strategy earlier in the year, and we did include in that, uh, kind of right at the heart of that, we hope came through this very strong focus on supporting African governments in their path to structural transformation and industrialization. I mean, we did also really try to get in there a sense of urgency. And I think it would be very useful to hear a bit more from others from the OECD, uh, this, whether this sense of, of there being a kind of quite a, an opportunity right now, particularly for sub-Saharan Africa, mm -hmm. to attract investment, and particularly this issue that we focused on, this sense that there's an opportunity now uh, with Chinese investment in search of lower-cost locations, whether this focus on sub-Saharan Africa doing something right now to attract that investment uh, and a sense of a lost opportunity if sub-Saharan Africa doesn't get that right. It would be useful to know if you feel feel that's right or if I wonder if that's a little bit too panicky. Mm -hmm. So um, it would be useful to, to hear your response on that. Um, but nevertheless, we have tried to focus very hard, particularly on the manufacturing piece, um, for various reasons. I mean, yes, the job reason, but also because we do feel that sectors that are firmly plugged into the wider global economy are the right sectors to be focusing on as we go forward. And I think the key phrase in the report that more diversified economies perform significantly better than less diversified. I mean, it, it sounds facile, but I think it's really important that you've got that right up there. And I think focusing on the export-focused sectors in order to really try and bind sub-Saharan Africa particularly 
into global growth paths is very much at the heart of what we're doing. And again, it would be useful to see if you think that's right or if you want to challenge that. I mean, I was just going to say uh, a couple of things about the, the what more specifically. We did last year launch a new program. We call it a flagship program called Invest Africa, which is specifically, we hope, trying to behave very much in, in the way you've said, um, with several elements to it. And uh, I was just going to run through that because I think it is interesting vis-a-vis -vis your list. I mean, what we're trying to do with that Invest Africa program, and we've given ourselves targets to reach in terms of mobilizing investment, we're trying to have at the heart of that quite an explicit link between investors, buyers, and the African government. So we've tried specifically to take one step back and not do the generic business environment work, but actually to try and pick up the specific regulatory and policy challenges that are raised by investors and begin to work with African governments to address those. And I mean, we absolutely think that the challenge to move away from the generic business environment work to the targeted work is that's well taken and we are trying to do that. It's not necessarily straightforward. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that um, we're thinking about doing, and again, it would be useful to see if other people agree this is the right thing to be doing, is to really put more effort into the buying piece. We've tried in Ethiopia, and the ambassador from Ethiopia is here, we very much tried to um, play a brokering role to bring buyers and investors together in Ethiopia, and we think that's worked well. How much more should we be doing in that um, buying and purchasing space, that end of the trade route? It would be um, interesting to get advice from others here. We, we do think that there's a useful role uh, and a possibility of creating some kind of buying platform either here in the UK um, or more broadly. And I know the Dutch have, uh, have gone some way down creating a, a platform, a facility um, to promote com companies that are selling into the Netherlands, and that's, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about. Is there a market failure there? Is that something we should be, we should be investing in? I mean, the other thing that's come over um, quite strongly when we talk to governments about how they would most like to see us working is very much in the training space, but absolutely responding to the specific training needs that the manufacturing firms identify. And again, one thing we're doing in Ethiopia is to support what we call the onboarding of um, 60,000 workers into the uh, industrial parks, particularly the textile factories, working not just on the hard skills, but also the softer skills. So the skills about um, the commitment to work, managing absenteeism. And that's a message that's come over very strongly through the partnership conversations with the investors. Um, the other piece that's come over strongly um, as a request to us has been to work on um, the kind of transparency and the stability around the actual um, labor market uh, regulatory approaches. We had a big investment event earlier in the year with our Secretary of State and with Jim Kim, the president of the World Bank, with a lot of investors in the room. And, and something that they asked repeatedly for was clarity about how wages are set. So it isn't necessarily they need to know that wages will stay low, but they do need to understand what the public sector approach to wage setting is. 
uh, and need to understand that there's a transparent and kind of known process with a known cycle for taking decisions. So we've also been working with the ILO. The ILO have um, a series of programs in South Asia, and we're working with the ILO to move some of those programs into Africa. And that's a very interesting piece of work mm -hmm. to follow, I think, as well. Um, so I think just two final points from me on the, on the, I guess, are they how or are they what? I think they're how. I mean, um, something that um, we're very focused on is how uh, our development finance institution, CDC, who are here in the room, but about how they can move into this sector. But also, really importantly, how uh, we can really, as shareholders in many development finance institutions, including the multilateral ones, really try and mobilize and encourage them to work collaboratively and sy systemically, particularly at country level. So I think around the kind of organized, more organized strategies and plans you're talking about, one of the things you didn't have on your list was this sense that the DFIs can sometimes compete with each other. And I think we've seen that when we can really kind of marshal collaborative uh, behaviors, that you can really begin to see some quite exciting investment at scale, and particularly the investment in the right infrastructure to support transformation. And that's something we're really focused on now, which is just not... It's just not kind of power for power's sake or roads for road's sake, but really asking that fundamental question, is this the right infrastructure, particularly the urban infrastructure, to generate this kind of diversified economy? So I think those were the main things I wanted Brilliant. to say. Brilliant. Thank Thanks. you very much indeed. So, um, I mean, she put uh, quite a, uh, some interesting points there. Um, uh, it's about a window of opportunity for manufacturing. Have we identified it right? How long uh, is that opportunity still there? A lot about discussion about coordination, um, uh, about uh, including with uh, amongst the DFIs, about training needs, um, and something about importing. And could you just uh, say just one line about the trade announcement from yesterday, which provides some security for? Yes. Well, I don't. I don't know if you saw that we did. Uh, we did make an announcement yesterday that um, we were very clear, and you will have seen in the the government's manifesto the commitment to transition the existing EU trade agreements. But we specifically were clear yesterday that we will be continuing the preferential everything but arms agreement for the 48 least. Uh, developed countries. Uh, we think it's a very important announcement for investors particularly to give investors that sense of mm. stability in the trading environment with the UK. Um, mm -hmm. We also were clear that um, we would also transition the other preferential trading agreements in terms of opportunities to improve the um, trading regime. Um, of course, that depends on um, various developments, but um, we were also clear that we do think there are ways to offer a very strong package of support for developing countries around their ability to trade into the UK, mm -hmm. um, and we're also working hard to see how we could improve that trade facilitation offer as well. Mm -hmm. Very good. We estimate that, um, here at ODI, I think that the offer is worth about £323 million. Uh, pounds a year uh, in terms of avoided duties 
um, in, 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 in the UK. And of course, there's more that can be done perhaps for other African countries that are not LDCs. But I think that's a really important uh, announcement and a very, a very good step forward. Very good. So. Um, um, We've heard this about sort of donor perspective, the public policy perspective. Let's go to a private sector perspective uh, um, around uh, some of the issues, and we'd like to hear about sort of financing into African entrepreneurs from you. Um, good morning. Um, thanks, Dirk, and the ODI for this invitation today, and also to the fellow panelists. Um, I sit here with two hats. I am a private sector representative. I work at Investec Asset Management full-time, but I'm also an economist at the Witt School of Governance in Johannesburg. So I just want to pick up, before I go into my own presentation, um, which... Okay, forward, right. Okay, so before I go into my own presentation, I just want to pick up on two points um, from, from the panel and also what we discussed this morning. Um, coordination around issues, which, you know, Jonathan, it's one of the key planks of, of your paper. And the thing that, that I'm finding interesting is that, you know, we know automation is happening, the fourth industrial revolution. It's come up as well in Federico's presentation. So why are we not planning aggressively for the jobs that are going to disappear in all of these sectors? I mean, you know, we, we're talking about entrepreneurship and, and industrialization, but there needs to, I think, you know, be an urgent shift towards planning towards all of these jobs that are going to disappear in the global economy. The training and skills that needs to happen needs to be in tech. The financial services need to be in fintech. I mean, mobile payments are key um, multipliers at the moment. You know, I think some of those numbers are not even captured in GDP. You know, um, automation, but it will also mean that there's an opportunity to scale jump because we're starting from such a low base in Africa. There's an opportunity to be nimble. And I'll just stop there. But tech, I cannot stress enough why are we not planning for the shift. I mean, I almost feel like we're kind of looking backwards with the existing technical arrangements, knowing that there's this big urgent shift that's required. Similarly, climate change, which I also mentioned this morning. Um, as Dirk said, I was just in Basel um, on Friday, where we hosted Investec Asset Management. We host um, some central bankers from the eastern and southern states in Africa. And automation was one of the big concerns. The other concern was climate change. I think of all the regions on the planet, Africa is the most vulnerable to the risks that are coming from climate change, displacement from migration, food, droughts, and so on. But at the same time, there are opportunities. Uh, so if you think about the private sector perspective, within climate change, there are also great financial opportunities for people who start that shift now. So I'm talking about investing in renewables, talking about moving to green tech. And again, there's an opportunity for Africa here because, you know, if there's a demand for power, there's a demand, all, all these, um, all these um, infrastructural requirements can happen with a view to plan around the vulnerabilities around climate change. So I just, those are two kind of passionate things that I need to just uh, put on the agenda and then I'll start with, um, with my presentation. So... Um, I'll just give a very brief overview of the firm, uh, like 30 seconds. Um, so the kind of key bullet points to note here is that we are 25 years old, uh, founded in uh, 1991 in Africa. And I think this is quite um, important for my perspective here today and how we think about um, some of the issues in the private sector and what we can contribute to economic development as a firm. We're now global, and we manage about 115 billion US dollars across the world. 
Um, so this gives just a sort of um, perspective of how our assets are split. Um, we're split, the majority sitting in emerging markets, 59%, and uh, the rest of our assets are, are global. Um, interestingly, our all-China fund is one of our best-performing funds at the moment. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. The African asset sits here in this orange bit in the private, what we call our private market strategies. So that's um, stuff like private equity, real estate funds, and also um, the credit funds, which I will um, explain to you now. So there's about five, five billion sitting in alternatives. So what's interesting to me about Investec Asset Management and attracted me to the firm as a manager, and this is an important point in terms of what the private sector can do in terms of all of these constraints and the kind of world that will facilitate. I mean, the thing is, if you don't have a sustainable perspective, there be, will be no business environment with which to operate from. So I sit in the Investment Institute at Investec, where we do thought leadership, you know, and we try to integrate our firm values, not only within the firm, but also in the broader community with which we engage. So part of that is stewardship, and that is how we look after clients' money. So that is an active role. We also, at the moment, are engaging quite a lot on the idea of long-termism, which is another um, issue that I brought up this morning. So the thing is, if you want to do job creation, alleviate poverty, um, you know, create infrastructure skills, these are really long-term goals. Unfortunately, we're sitting in a financial sector, which is, and also I think a lot of other sectors, which is driven by short-term incentives, quarterly results, quarterly reporting. So how do you reconcile that kind of mentality for instant gratification with the kinds of issues that we've got to resolve here? So we are participating in that conversation through the Business and Sustainable Development Commission, where we have been um, talking about how we can shift capital to the long term to meet the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Also, one of my uh, colleagues is seconded to the United Nations Sustainable Development um, and Financing Network, and we're also part of the Coalition for Inclusive Capitalism. So in terms of... Um, how we have operated in Africa. This timeline here just shows some of the key milestones um, and some of the funds that I'm going to talk about here today. So credit opportunities in 2008, um, that's kind of the expertise we started gaining and, you know, this lending to the private sector. And then um, you'll see that we've got um, the Emerging Africa Infrastructure Fund, which uh, Rachel will be very familiar with because DFID is one of the... Um, the, the key uh, donors there, and we also this year launching the Africa Real Estate Fund, which looks at you know prime office space and 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 raises those funds around those opportunities. Now, I don't know if people actually realise that this. I mean, I was very. I mean, I joined Investec in February, and uh, this part of um, the work that we do in infrastructural uh, development was for me extremely fascinating. You know that I I saw that you know the DFI work taking place within the private sector. And I think some of the efficiency gains from those exchanges are, I mean, I can imagine invaluable. You know, myself having, you know, studied finance, I've always wondered, am I going to go the DFI route? I'm going to go the private sector route. And it's really great to see people coordinating around their problem solving. And I think this is really, you know, because, I mean, I think the, the problem is from the private sector perspective, people... Um, you know, say if you're Ontario pension fund sitting in Canada, um, you know, you maybe have a sustainable 
or ESG imperative on your fund. You maybe want to contribute to something sustainable. You want to diversify your portfolio because you want to go into an emerging markets, but you know absolutely nothing about Africa. And somebody made the point this morning that there also needs to be sort of like a reverse education about um, what opportunities are available. And I think the most interesting thing is the due diligence that is required in Africa. And I mean, I think we're, we're kind of one of the pioneers in the space. So we do have done a lot of um, risk management around our investments. And um, I think capital market development is the point I want to get to now. Because, you know, the thing is, if I think about, um, let me think, is it Sierra Leone, which I think has one company on its stock exchange, you know, and I mean, you've got um, markets like the UK with like immense amounts of liquidity and information and so on. So the thing is, what's also difficult for investors is they may want to go into that market, but again, there's no skills, you know, there are no investment bankers, there are no, you know, sort of massive underwriters that can put together a billion dollar deal and sell it to investment banks on roadshows, you know, so that's capital market development. So when we, when, we, when we do some of these projects in Africa, I mean, of course, there's the nice fuzzy warm feeling from the developmental impact. And that's very important to us as a firm and where we come from and our ethos. But it's also, you know, the, it's, it's, it's also in the long run, once those capital markets start becoming more sophisticated, that means second rounds of financing can come in and we'll be pioneers and we'll be ahead of other people there as well. So I think um, that's just a very important point um, that I want to make there. Um, you know, that, that's, that companies, uh, countries need a lot of support in terms of how to raise these funds on the capital market. Um, and then um, just in terms of the entrepreneurship and industrialization angle, I mean, I think financing for infrastructure is key. And it's very difficult for that to happen um, without public and private coordination. Um, some of the constraints in Africa create massive um, opportunities. I mean, all of these companies, whether they be tech, whether they be textiles, they're going to need electricity, they're going to need water, they're going to need roads to bring the workers to the factories, they're going to need, you know, educated workforces and so on. So there, you know, a lot of um, opportunities just um, to create vital infrastructure. The infrastructure funding gap um, at the moment in Africa sits at 31 billion. Um, the total annual required investment is uh, 93 billion. So, I mean, the thing is, you know, if you think we've only got about four and a half billion, you know, there's still quite a lot of capacity to get involved in projects there. Um, so then I just want to go a bit more granular and try and finish up because I don't want to go over time. Um, so, as I said, we have this credit opportunities um, strategy, um, which we started in 2008, and that expertise um, allowed us to... Um, to win this mandate with the Emerging Africa Infrastructure Fund, um, which is about uh, the majority of our infrastructure um, assets under management, 700 million um, with an annual flow of 200 million US dollars. And um, what's interesting about the, the EAIF, it's, um, it's, it is a public-private partnership, but there's also um, development actors and development agencies um, involved in there, the Swiss, the, the, the British, um, KFW and FMO, and uh, that just gives um, an explanation of how EAIF sits within the PIDGE. Um, so you may be familiar with some of these other organizations like Infraco and so on. And um, 
and we're and we're managing the entire mandate for EIF. So I mean, this is this is really really exciting stuff. I mean, to to get up in the morning and think that my colleagues are doing these things, you know, it just it's just not what you expect to be happening in the private sector. And then um, so then just very quickly, um, these are the types of finance that um, that we can provide. You know, lending to the private sector for. Um, Examples of things we've done is like Helios Towers, IHS Towers for Mobile, Kivu in Uganda. We've done a lot of power plants and so on. And um, and that's sort of just the mix. And, and where we have gone into manufacturing, it's been steel, which is obviously required for infrastructure. So there's a lot of thinking around how these um, efforts support one another. That just gives an overview of some of the, the growth, the projects by company, the splits by sectors. And... Um, I'll just leave the summary of the transactions because that's quite a busy slide and we've we've run out of time. So in sum, many of these transactions will deepen capital markets and improve the capacity of countries to raise capital, allowing for the liquidity and market structure for second rounds of flows and further developmental multipliers. Okay, thank you very much. And just, just, just one, one question on sort of how close you come to the manufacturers. So... I mean, we discuss entrepreneurs, of course, more widely, but manufacturing in, in particular. And um, sort of a lot of funds that you discuss are about infrastructure. Um, I mean, in various forms, uh, whether it's energy or mobile phone uh, technology. Um, how, how close do you come to a garments factory or electronics factory or uh, a special economic zone that, um, that can uh, foster clusters of, uh, of um, manufacturers? So I'm not a portfolio manager, but mm -hmm. I was sitting um, with one of my colleagues. I uh, did a presentation at Basel on this fund, Martin, and he's been with the EIF for nine years. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, he goes, you know, into the rural areas, you know, coordinates with the finance ministry. So I think, you know, it's, it's sitting, you know, quite – it's not a kind of abstract process for them. I think they're very actively involved. They're traveling a lot on the ground. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, but they actually invest also in, in manufacturers. Do you, do you invest well, in private a, equity? Or? Well, there's a, there's a steel plant yeah. in Tunisia yeah. that I know that we've um, invested in. And the, that really busy slide has all the actual, you know, like Seacom, um, Ethiopian Airlines is one that I mentioned to the ambassador okay. this morning. Mm -hmm. You know, so, um, yeah, so into actual, actual companies. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, that's been fascinating, these presentations. And we, it's now time for the audience to... Uh, to come in. Um, I think there are at least two uh, important topics that we've got to discuss. Um, one is about the importance of coordination. Uh, and I think what, uh, we heard it about coordinating uh, buyers, investors, African governments. Um, that's, that's, that's important. Also coordinating DFIs. So that will be probably important to discuss. Uh, what are the ideas we, can, we, uh, we have here? What can be done on this? And the other issue that, that I think Rachel in particular put on the table, but also uh, Desne at the end, is about um, the window of opportunity for manufacturing. And um, maybe also I'd like to hear from the ambassador for, from Ethiopia on this, is that there's phenomenal growth in employment uh, in, in manufacturing in, uh, in Ethiopia, of course from a low base. Um, it has still some way to go. There's still sort of a window of opportunity there. How long is this window of opportunity? And how do we prepare for the future 20 years, 15 years ahead? Um, that sort of the other jobs that are need, need to be created around, around autom automation and the like. 
Um, so I suppose that is an important uh, uh, also challenge that was put to Federica in particular. But I'd like to sort of bring in the audience, and um, um, if you um, if you could uh, sort of uh, if you've got a question or or a point, just introduce yourself briefly, and maybe you can just speak for one one minute or so, um, and um, uh, and then we sort of go around um, and then come back to the panel to respond. Uh, gentleman over there. David Woolcombe, Peace Child International, an organiser of the uh, London Youth Job Creation Summit. Um, I would agree manufacturing is a great hope for uh, uh, job creation, but the Haiti story of a T-shirt factory, which was set up with all the automation employing only about 15 people, is the example of the problem that you have. We know from Filmer and Fox's study that in sub-Saharan Africa, 80 to 90% of young people in Africa will only ever work in sole trader household enterprises. How, what is happening in your studies to fill that gap? You've mentioned 29 million young people coming onto the job market every year. You've mentioned the 50 million that look like they're going to be without jobs in Africa in 2040. Um, DFID had a great, very promising program called Startup. Uh, developed by their Intimations, uh, Innovations Department, which was dropped, addressing that problem. I don't hear anything from any of you about what you're doing in the school systems to educate young people for the entrepreneurial challenges mm -hmm. that they face at the bottom of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. And that's what really worries me. Very good point. Um, so, shall we hear from the, the ambassador of, of Ethiopia? I don't know whether you'd like to come in about sort of the, sort of the wind of opportunity of, of, of manufacturing. Uh, but also, of course, where are the jobs that have come from in, in, in Ethiopia, for example? Yeah, but it's, and thank, you, thank you so much. Thank you for the presentations. Very interesting. Um, I think this is an interesting question uh, raised. And that's why we say uh, we need to also focus on rural transformation, meaning agro-processing, which will definitely employ literally hundreds of thousands of young rural uh, men and women. So that's one thing. So the processing thing, food, and 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 many other uh, items. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Relates also very closely to job creation. <coughs> and then manufacturing, uh, uh, like Frederico was saying this morning, it's not just uh, focus on agriculture, but also on diversification, which also includes. Uh, manufacturing, and we're we're encouraging domestic uh, investment, but also public-private partnership, as well as uh, foreign direct investment, and working in 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 uh, a collaboration with domestic investors. And I'm sure all these uh, we learn as we go, and 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 improve things, study analyze and improve as we go, but diversification is very important. Rural transformation in terms of uh, developing agro-processing uh, um, industries, the industrial parks that we're trying to build in the country, mm -hmm. uh, which bring together, uh, like was said this morning, uh, buyers and <laughs> And, and producers as well, which is, which is very important because you need to find markets for, for the uh, products from our industrial parks as well. But it's not just industrial parks, uh, you know, supported by 
government with all the incentives, um, but also trade, finding markets, and we're working with um, importers uh, here in the United Kingdom and uh, European countries, the United States of America, the AGOA uh, arrangement. And I'm glad to hear that you have also the preferential uh, uh, trade, which uh, Africans have been worrying about. Is it going to change? What's going to happen to to these things? And I'm glad to hear this. This is very good. This will encourage also uh, trade and uh, and investment in Africa. Mm -hmm. So all in all, yes, manufacturing is high on the agenda. And we're trying to encourage domestic uh, investment also and effect mindset change because this is hard work also. It's not just to go uh, and then buy things, you know, but this investment from uh, the, what we call the value chain, mm. from production all the way to processing, mm. to export. Um, so this is for both local market as well as uh, export. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, uh, over here, Rebecca. I think it's here, Neil. There. Left. Okay. Hi, Rebecca Perlman from Herbert Smith Free Hills. We're an international law firm and we've advised on um, deals across all 54 African countries. Um, Dr. Maisie, you raised various issues in relation to short term thinking. Um, in the private sector, that can manifest in terms of results-driven and, and, and reporting um, focus. But I've also seen it manifest in the development sector in terms of KPIs that are determined in line with very short-term funding cycles, for example. Um, and locally, within governments and ministries and departments, can often manifest in corruption. So I'd love to hear more about how you're dealing with that, those sorts of issues in the private sector, and then hear about how um, the sorts of solutions that you're coming up with might be applicable uh, in the um, the other sectors that I mentioned. Okay, very good. good. Gentleman over there. <coughs> Hi, uh, my name is Dimitri Kofi. I'm uh, currently writing my dissertation in uh, trade integration within ECOWAS. Um, I'm from Sussex University. I was wondering, I do believe that um, inter-trade inter is uh, one of the key and main drivers of growth um, in Africa and just everywhere. Um, I was wondering what you would find, what were the key striking uh, significant differences between West Africa, ECOWAS, and the economic, um, the EAC, and other uh, regional trade agreements that you found. Thank you. Okay. David? Uh, David Booth from ODI. I work on the uh, SET program. Um, I'd like to just uh, uh, repeat the, the comment that the, this African Economic Outlook is a really useful document, fantastic result, with some very sound policy recommendations. But at the same time, I think, I mean, it does raise a lot of questions about how, how the uh, uh, government policies are actually going to be coordinated or, uh, on the lines suggested. And in that sense, I think it, it really needs to be complemented by Jonathan Institute's uh, um, Paper which has some some excellent ideas about uh, navigating the, uh, the 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 political economy environment to get those kinds of policies adopted. Um, it's a real sort of uh, uh, um, reality check, I think, for those of us who know a little about how things are on the ground in in, in African policy uh, systems. 
Um, Jonathan mentioned uh, uh, um, the, the role of embedded teams, and I wonder if he might uh, expand a little bit on, on the kind of experience in country that is being drawn on here. And I wonder if Rachel might actually consider whether, uh, as part of the economic development strategy of DFID and, and, and Invest Africa in particular, there might be more support to this kind of practical problem-solving uh, work at country level a bit beyond just linking up buyers and, and, and producers, but, but, but actually uh, providing resources to teams who can help in that business of, of navigating the policy environment at country level. Because yes. I think it's in that is in danger of being underfunded too. David, you forgot to plug your paper about the how-to of economic transformation. <laughs> um, uh, lady here, and then Alistair, and then we go back to the panel. Eva Thorne from the Tony Blair Institute. So I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but I'm wondering if anyone has gamed out. So if you're looking at 29 million people entering the workforce in need of employment, if we take the rosiest perspective possible that our 50 plus African governments are going to pedal to the metal and adopt all the kinds of policy recommendations that we've talked about here, how much of that gap is going to be closed? I don't know if that's been gamed out. Presumably, under the best case scenario, there will still be a significant gap. And I think about the dialogue that's happening in Western countries where everyone is completely worried about automation, complete industries going under, and it's a huge policy question in the UK and the US and other Western countries. And there's a nascent debate about something like a universal basic income. In some places, it's gaining traction at a micro level. Some places, like Switzerland and elsewhere, it's been voted down. Is that discussion anywhere on the horizon in sub-Saharan African countries, where if we're looking at this gap by 2030 or 2040, best case scenario, there will still be a significant gap. I'm imagining that there will still be tens of millions of people unemployed in a context with conflicts ensuing over climate change, all the other challenges that we know about, presents to me a very, very frightening scenario. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that discussion is taking place in the policy realm mm -hmm. about universal basic income, et cetera, where it is and, and what's to be done. Okay. And then I'll stop there. <laughs> I have a very good, thank you. Uh, Alistair. Thank you, Alistair Fernie from McKinsey. Um, so I just wanted to respond to a couple of points that people have raised that we've done some research on and then ask a question. Um, so we brought out a report in January called The Future of Work, um, which touches on these issues of automation and what will happen to existing jobs. It's not focused on Africa. Um, and I'm not working on that agenda myself, but I've spoken to my colleagues who are and um, have asked them whether the stuff that I and some of my colleagues are working on, which is exactly the same set of issues around manufacturing and getting investment into Africa, um, uh, hopefully as job intensive as possible, whether we're wasting our time and um, we need to turn a couple of pages and um, invest in some leapfrogging. And, and their answer is clearly no. Um, this is not an either-or choice. There is a significant window of opportunity where a lot of jobs which are currently getting priced out of China and other parts of East Africa could be picked up by countries like Ethiopia if they get their act together. Now, they may not all be there in 20 years' time, but I think a council to African governments that says, 
think about what your economy is going to look like in 20 years' time and miss this opportunity, this window which is clearly there now, is bad counsel. So it's not an either-or. Uh, African governments should start thinking about the impact of automation on the kinds of jobs that they are able to attract and retain. Um, but for heaven's sake, let's not lose this opportunity whilst it's there because it's probably got a couple of decades worth in it and that's going to make a lot of difference to a lot of people's lives. Um, secondly, if I can just put in a plug which responds to Rachel's question, uh, we are releasing a report later this week um, in WEF China on Chinese investment in Africa, um, which uh, we will put on our website, I think, probably at the end of the week or the beginning of next week. Um, we interviewed over a thousand Chinese companies investing in Africa, and the results are very surprising, including to the Chinese government and to African governments. Most people have no idea of the scale and positive impact on inclusive growth for poor Africans of Chinese investment in Africa. 85% uh, of all the jobs that Chinese companies are creating in Africa are um, held by Africans, not by Chinese people. 45% of the managers are African. Most of the companies are Chinese private sector companies. They are not SOEs. This is not being masterminded by the Chinese government. These are Chinese entrepreneurs who are spotting opportunities in Africa, making significant profits, um, and are there to stay. So I'm sure they would all welcome some of the reforms that DFID is going to bring in under Invest Africa or that other people are addressing, but they are finding opportunities now, and they are making things work, because the bottom line is they are more entrepreneurial than either Western investors or a lot of African investors. They have the recent experience of taking manufacturing to scale and I think everybody needs to learn a lot from what those Chinese entrepreneurs are doing in Africa. And that brings me to my question to Rachel. Rachel, you talked about the need for collaboration between multilateral agencies on this agenda, which I think everybody would agree with. But the question is also, what is the scope for collaboration between countries? Um, so we can see that there are some UK political imperatives um, to try to increase UK trade with African countries. Um, there is a risk, and it might be a good problem to have, um, of a 21st century scramble for Africa, where people are looking uh, to take advantage of the opportunities of countries like Ethiopia, which are creating environments favorable to, to foreign investors. Um, there are also some potential downsides um, if donor countries pursue these opportunities um, in a very commercially aggressive way. Uh, and there are some promising ideas, I think, around, including uh, under the German G20 presidency, to get countries to work a little bit collaboratively. This is private sector, we expect competition, um, but I'm interested to know what scope you think there is for countries which really care about this to work with their own private sectors in a way which, which will produce the best results for Africa, the most inclusive growth and the most jobs for poor people. Very good. Thank you very much. I think the provision of, um, so there's a significant opportunity there. Um, as long as you're ready to take the opportunity, uh, you, can, you can gain from it. Um, and I think that, that's really important. I mean, we did some some of the scoping work on this Invest Africa program. I think looking at the policy functions behind this is really, really important. Um, okay, we've got a, a range of issues here. Um, uh, maybe too many, but I think there are issues around um, where the job's going to come from. Uh, and within that, do we have this, this opportunity uh, for manufacturing? Uh, are we too late? Is there still this opportunity out there? Um, that's, I think, is one overriding question, but perhaps then there are some other, some other uh, more specific questions to individual panelists. Uh, maybe I can start with Federico. Yep, thank you. For a few minutes. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you very much uh, to all for the question, and I will try to answer, um, not specific ones, but maybe cluster them um, a bit, a couple of, couple of points. 
Uh, one is whether uh, are African countries losing a window of opportunity, and is this sense of urgency, panicking, and uh, I think that the the answer. As every good economist is, it depends. Where you look at morning. Not on Monday morning, <laughs> but it depends. No, it depends on the country. I think that you have countries that have realized um, the reasons why investment is not flowing into, into their economies. And they're taking proactive steps to address uh, those reasons. Uh, just give, let, let's just think about one number. Uh, I think that today we have something like 12 trillions of dollars of sovereign um, bonds that are trading at negative uh, yields. So 35% of governing bonds, bonds are uh, trading at negative yields. And we have heard that there is a huge infrastructure <coughs> gap to be funded. There are huge opportunities in Africa. So why is capital not flowing to economies where there is a big need of capital and big returns? This is what in the early days uh, was called the Lucas paradox. And of course, one of the reasons is because it's very risky. So investors, once you adjust for risks, realize that it's not so profitable to invest in, in these economies. Well, how, what can you do to reduce risk? You can do two things. One is to come up with the appropriate risk mitigation instruments so that if the catastrophic event or if the risk actually materializes, you are covered, you are edged. And I think that here there's a very uh, good debate, healthy debate that is taking place in the international um, international financial institution about how to scale up and how to change and how to make risk mitigation instruments more useful and more uh, widely available. But on the other hand, you can also address the underlying causes of these risks that in many cases, if you want to boil them down to one, is institutions. Is the perceived capacity of institutions in African governments to deal with investors, to, to provide a predictable, stable, transparency, uh, um, regulatory framework. I'm not necessarily talking about uh, enabling environment, but investment, uh, like doing business indicators, but it's a whole range of issues. And I think that here uh, we need to, to, to be very cautious in not uh, swinging too much from one extreme to the other with this kind of Afro-optimism and Afro-pessimism. Uh, I think that there has been huge progresses that have, huge progress that has been made in many African countries in terms of macroeconomic management, improved the quality of institutions. There is still a lot to do, and I think it will be a very wise choice for the international community, um, including the donor agencies, to continue to support this institutional capacity building. And we have examples. Just want to give one: uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, or Senegal. Um, governments came up with very clear plans in terms of where they want to bring their economies in 2025 and 2030. And they realized that they have an image problem sometimes that they need to address, but they also need to come up with capacities to assess, monitor, and evaluate the reforms that are making. And there is very little money that is put by international organizations into this type of medium-term capacities to monitor and evaluate policies. How do we help governments to assess whether a specific reform had a positive impact or not? And I think that this is an area for further investigation. Second point that I want to address is the one about um, automation, uh, the role of China, uh, the future of manufacturing, and where are the jobs uh, coming from? I think that what we're trying to advocate in this report is that we shouldn't repeat the mistakes uh, that many African countries, and not only African countries, I'm Italian, I, I know that my government did a lot of mistakes uh, in this respect, um, many of the mistakes of the past, that you, government can identify the winning sectors, can pick them and, and provide the right incentives and everything will follow. I mean, it's magic. It's not like this. It's an interaction. 
there is a discovery process that needs to be in place. There are mechanisms that need to be strengthened, monitoring and evaluation ones, notably. But I think that what we're also trying to say in the report is don't focus on one specific sector only. There are opportunities everywhere. Infrastructure is not only building roads and energy. Think about cities. African countries are experiencing the fastest urbanization process in human history. And two-thirds of the, of the urban infrastructure, including houses, um, sewage, water and sanitation, all these kind of things, <coughs> between now and 2050, two-thirds of that infrastructure still needs to be built. And uh, I want to echo the point that was made earlier. Don't forget about climate change. So how you build those infrastructure also matter. So there are opportunities here to, be, uh, to create jobs. And I will stop there. Good. Thank you. That's, that's helpful. Um, Jonathan, uh, maybe you want to come in some of the questions. It was actually also an online question, um, and I won't, I won't be able to have uh, the time to uh, address them all, but it's one about are there any innovative ways um, that you've come across in, um, in, in sort of business and management uh, uh, studies dealing, in, dealing with business and government um, in, um, in African countries. But maybe you want to address some of the other points in a, sure. a very brief, briefly, and then I'll go to Rachel and Desna. Yeah, no, I think I think, and so building on uh, on on David's uh, question as well about embedded teams, I think there's we've seen from our own experience there's tremendous value in you know sitting so short we say shoulder to shoulder um, with with government, both technicians and politicians that have a that have a drive that that you know are working, join the government, and in some cases came back from the U.S. or Britain to go and work in government. Uh, because they want to see uh, the, the development of their own country and the 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 extent to which you're able to sit in 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 a desk next to them or close to them and go through the motions with them and see the world that they see the realities that they see the political environment that they have to respond to um, the capacity gaps that they experience where you know you might have a ministry where as if you go in as a minister, you want to achieve stuff, you want to do stuff, um, but you can only really rely on two or three people out of a whole ministry sometimes. Um, and so seeing that, and then also seeing the fact that you might want to run certain programs to have impact, to you know, put in a, a, an SME incubator, for example, but you simply do not have the resources to do that, not just technical, but also you are unable to get sometimes the, uh, the support from development partners to do that. Why? Because programming cycles, et cetera, et cetera, or the, agenda, the agendas don't quite fit into your own vision. And so being able to see this from, from uh, 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 locally and also understand the nature of the political realities is, is crucial. Most of the ministers and most of the people we work with spend probably 90, 95% of their time firefighting. That's the reality of a low-capacity government. You only have 5% to do something strategic, and here we're, everything we've talked about is strategic. And so extending that capacity, giving, increasing the bandwidth for them to do it, giving them the tools to succeed, even if it's simple things like monitoring and evaluation, learning mechanisms, even writing simple things like concept notes that might be able to one day be picked up by, by Rachel and her team. To, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to do something that the minister or the, or, or the, the, the technicians have a vision to do that, th that would be a local solution to the problems that they see and they experience on a day-to-day -day basis is a difficult thing to do as well in such ministries. And so that's, I think, where the tremendous uh, value comes from even changing the type of support we are giving to governments and to build, and it's mentioned in your report, build the industrial, poli the industrial departments in many governments. I've worked in three governments myself as a long-term advisor. And in each of these countries, the industry department was the, what, the least important. It was sort of, you know, within a ministry of trade, you focus on trade because that's where all the Geneva money comes from. 
but the industry department is a backwater, and I think that is a, that is sort of a fundamental problem where all this learning and opportunities are being lost. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah. Well, I mean, following on from that, I mean, David asked specifically whether this Invest Africa program could actually get people in those kind of teams. Absolutely, yes. I mean, that is very much the plan, and we're working that through with a number of governments at the moment, mainly in <laughs> East Africa, a couple in Southern Africa. So that's right. I mean, I think. Where we need to be careful, I think delivery, sort of specialised delivery units sometimes work, sometimes don't work. I think there's mixed experience of whether they can cope with transitions in government. <coughs> so we just need to be careful and savvy uh, in what we do there. I think your first point was really the most important one, though, that there has to be some collective strategy and intent. Mm -hmm. that those people are seeking to yes. help deliver. Yeah, so, um, but absolutely, in response to David, yes, we can and we will. Um, I think um, Alistair's question is about um, <coughs> how we can work more collaboratively with the other investors, and particularly the G20 investors. I mean, absolutely, I was at the um, Berlin conference, the conference that... Um, put out there the uh, idea of African countries having uh, compacts with the particularly with the G20. Um, the next step will really be very much at the country level. Um, and again, the opportunity is to support countries pull in uh, and engage with um, the key G20 investors, so including, China, including India, including Brazil. Um, of course, what the report does so clearly is make clear the amount of investment that's also coming from North Africa into Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think that's a really important statistic in this report and also kind of something that needs to be at the heart of thinking about that collaborative effort. I mean, we are in DFID engaged um, through uh, our team in India and our team in China in um, a partnership around outward investment from India and China into sub-Saharan Africa uh, and working on a range of issues there, um, mainly around the quality of investment. So it could be great to see that report that Alistair spoke about. Um, we had a question about um, how do we measure success and the, and the longer-term measures of success. I suppose, I mean, there are many ways could answer that. Um, uh, and how we kind of set up targets for the long term. I mean, what I would say is um, we feel that um, really in con continuing to invest in some of the underlying uh, survey work, enterprise survey work, labor force survey work, is really, really important to give us an accurate picture. Um, we are looking at the case for doing um, a lot more longitudinal work around people who've been employed uh, in um, both private sector but also DFI-sponsored investments. We're looking at tracer studies. There's an interesting piece of work, you're involved with it, around um, getting good methodologies into tracer studies linked to um, FDI and DFI investment. So, I mean, um, not wanting to avoid your question around the success benchmarks, but we think the imperative now is to really invest in that some of the quality of data so that we really understand very well what the transmission mechanisms are and what's going on. And of course, we do have the global goals as our overarching mm. metric for ambition. Good. Thanks, Rachel. Um, okay. Very pressed for time. Just picking up from where Rachel uh, left off, um, I think um, 
how, whether it's in the private sector, whether it's, you know, in the donor agencies or DFIs, I think reporting, you know, like what are the time frames for reporting? Do we measure success in a few months or do we measure it in a year? What, and and then, then, as you said, what, what kind of data do we want to measure, you know, th which will also change in terms of if we change the time frames. And then just with regard to corruption, I mean, you know, uh, if you're a private sector inv investor, you're going to have to do due diligence and risk management. It just uh, quite simply comes down to that and things that you would not touch with a disinfected barge pole. So um, then, yes, universal basic income has come up um, with the central bankers I spent time with on Friday um, in relation to automation, and that's about expanding the social safety net, a broader welfare conversation, which will take too long to have now, but it is it is definitely part of the debate. And then Alistair, um, I don't think I'm saying we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. Certainly if there are midterm opportunities in, you know, manufacturing and so on, you know, definitely, uh, you know, that should happen. But when offloading jobs from Asia, for example, I think one thing, uh, Stephen Gulp is here. I mean, you'll know that your, uh, Eddie Webster does a lot of work in, in decent jobs. It's also what kind of jobs in this kind of race to the bottom. Do we, do we want low-wage manufacturing jobs? Is that really what we want? And then... Um, so that's just one point. And then I'm absolutely evangelical about fintech in Africa. You know, um, in some parts of Africa, so the thing is, yes, there's this wind opportunity, but there are places in Africa where there are literally no jobs. There's no government coordination. There are no, there's just nothing happening in terms of opportunities. And that's, however, there are mobile devices, you know, and, and, and fintech, not only does it allow for, for payments and financial architecture to exist where governments have frankly failed people and there is no financial inclusion it allows for payment to happen and I think is is definitely going to be you know one of the most fundamental technology areas where Africa can actually become a leader as well okay so well thank you very much I think that brings us to the end um, so a big thanks um, for um, sort of Federico for launching the African economic outlook here in the UK uh, thinking about what to focus on the the opportunity-driven entrepreneurs. Uh, we've also discussed about manufacturing, that there is a, there is a, a wind of opportunity, um, but there are issues we need to discuss further around, uh, around um, uh, automation. Uh, but uh, African countries need to be ready to take, uh, to, to, to take the opportunity. Um, we, we, we've had a discussed a range of challenges, but also solutions and about the how-to. Um, so an issue about coordination has been uh, been mentioned uh, quite a lot. Um, that is that is that has been really important. And we heard about from the ambassador of Ethiopia on industrial parks how that is trying to provide a coordinated approach to attracting investors. We've heard around um, uh, embedded teams um, how important that is. We've also heard about sort of donor initiatives that try to foster coordination. Uh, for example, the Invest Africa initiative. Uh, so we can be really happy on this mo Monday morning that we know about the what, the how, and we've got a, a list of things to get on with. So uh, thank you very much to the uh, uh, to the presenters, but also the audience. And I'm sorry I wasn't able to to, uh, to hear from all of you, but maybe on the next meeting on manufacturing. Uh, I don't know when it's going to be, but at some point. Thank you very much. And uh, look at the, all the publications online, um, both uh, from the Tony Blair Institute and uh, the African Economic Outlook. And of course, um, we've got a set website where all of our publications are online as well. So have a look, and <coughs> I hope to see you soon again at ODI. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. 
For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.